Watchtower is not led by conservatives. There's a population out there that has to be told the truth. Uh, we have to. Do it live! Now, from the left coast, it's another podcast edition of the Peter B. Collins Show. Peter B. is curious, opinionated, and relentless in pursuit of the truth like a honeybee drawn to pollen. He's an independent progressive, ready to sting Republicans and Democrats alike when they deserve it. After years in commercial radio, Peter B. welcomes you to this audio adventure in news and politics with no corporate filter. Listeners support this program, and you can help at PeterBCollins.com. Here's your humble host, Peter B. And I remain your humble host, humbled by the support of listeners all around the country and around the world, too. I want to thank Andrew Krieger, Nancy Patterson of Winters, California, and Joseph Piper. Just three of the people who sign up for voluntary monthly subscriptions that start as low as $5 a month. You can get the details at PeterBCollins.com. Click on the tab that says You Can Help. And this month is Tell a Friend Month. I'm asking you, when you finish listening to this podcast, to send a link to PeterBCollins.com to a like-minded friend or family member, or 10 if you like. Our goal is to double our audience this month, and that's how you can help. Later in this program, our official film reviewer, Gary Chu, will join us to talk about a new film called The Ghost Rider. There's some controversy because it was produced by Roman Polanski. But it's a powerful fictional tale of a former prime minister of England who's working on his memoirs and during that time is accused of war crimes, including waterboarding of prisoners. And before Gary joins us, I want to welcome back to our program, Dr. Jeffrey Kay. He is a psychiatrist based here in the San Francisco Bay Area, and he's been with us before with a criticism of the Bush-era policies of detention, torture, and uh, rendition. Jeffrey Kay, welcome back. Thank you. Glad to be here. And we're joined by H.P. Uh, Alberelli Jr., Hank Alberelli. And he co-authored a piece with Jeffrey Kay in, uh, that was published on truthout.org on the 17th of February. And uh, I encourage you to read it. I'll put the link up in the show information file related to this podcast. Hank Alberelli, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me, Peter. I appreciate it. And you have published a book um, that I... It, it's five books, actually, in one volume. And I've managed to get through the first two in uh, the week that I've had your book. And it is a chilling and fascinating account of the history of uh, mind alteration techniques, the use of drugs, uh, and some of the, the really dark, dark side of our intelligence community, dating back all the way to the end of World War II. And your book is called A Terrible Mistake, The Murder of Frank Olson and the CIA's Secret Cold War Experiments. And I want to talk to the two of you about the Truth Out article, and then Hank... Uh, uh, we'll go solo with you to detail some of the information in this powerful new book. Now, um, many Americans are aware of the so-called enhanced interrogation techniques. 
The unlimited detention without charge that continues for some of the remaining inmates at Guantanamo Bay, Cuba, and elsewhere around the globe at black sites that we may not even know about. And there have been occasional charges uh, from some of those who've been released from American detention about the way they were handled. And many people are aware of the sleep deprivation, the uh, frequent flyer program, they called it at Gitmo, where they would move people from cell to cell to keep them awake and to uh, uh, disrupt any, any, uh, you know, uh, uh, any kind of uh, uh, adjustment that they might make to their surroundings. And we know that when people were transferred, either in the rendition program or those who were captured, for example, in Afghanistan, who ultimately went to Guantanamo Bay, that there is a ritual that's used, that the people are shackled, they are hooded, and they are given an anal suppository as they are placed on the plane. And it's never been explained to me exactly what's in that suppository, but your article and Hank Alberelli's book really describes the history of our intelligence community's use of mind-altering drugs, of uh, various techniques that we have seen exhibited in the uh, the recent past in the so-called War on Terror. And Jeff Kay, uh, what is for you the most astounding part of the program that has been underway, and it is largely ignored by the corporate media in this country? Yes, it, well, it, the fact that it's ignored, I think, is the most astounding, but I think that that is uh, something that the government wants. I only recently, and I think it's reported in this article that I did with Hank, uh, discovered that the Pentagon's uh, Office of Inspector General is, in fact, investigating charges um, at the behest of certain U.S. senators, including former Senator Biden, of drugging of, of prisoners in this uh, war on terror. Uh, I don't know what's in those suppositories, but uh, one of the most chilling facts that have come to light lately was that one of the three um, prisoners at Guantanamo in the Scott Horton article that revealed the existence of Camp No at Guantanamo. And right. And Scott, much- Scott has been on our program, and that podcast is available for people. It is chilling. It's the cover story in the March edition of uh, Harper's Magazine. And just to summarize briefly, in June of 2006... Three detainees were taken out of Camp Victory at Guantanamo to a nearby black site that's referred to uh, casually as uh, Camp No, and uh, they were dead when they returned. Yes, it was a brilliant article. That was a very good interview, too. I did hear that. Thank you. And um, one of the prisoners, of course, uh, unreported by the U.S., but only found out later when the families did their own autopsies, had needle marks on both of his arms, mm-hmm. um, in, indicating the injection of something. We, of course, don't know what. And um, I think what uh, Hank's book so amply demonstrates is the long history of the use of, uh, of drugs. The other most outrageous thing, by the way, I should say, is that it's still going on now. How do we know this? Because the current version of the Auto- Army Field Manual of an, on Interrogation specifically made a change um, in 2006, from the old version to the new version, that change allowed, struck the prohibition in the pre- all previous versions of the Army Field Manual in use of drugs that would profoundly affect the sensorium of individuals, would profoundly change their consciousness or mind. Mm-hmm. That prohibition is now gone. The only prohibition on use of drugs in the current Army Field Manual 
which in interrogations uh, under these uh, under the field manual are currently taking place at Guantanamo, as was confirmed to me by the Guantanamo Public Affairs Office just a month ago or so. The Army Field Manual only bans drugs that would cause um, permanent lasting damage. Well, as anyone who's taken drugs may know, and I'm not owning up to anything here, mm-hmm. you can profoundly change the way a person is thinking or, or how they're experiencing the world without permanently damaging them. Yeah. And I believe, you know, I don't obviously have concrete proof, but there's plenty of reason to believe that's going on even now. And Hank, you provide this deep historical context, and we'll talk about Frank Olson and uh, Project MK Ultra and some of the other programs that date back uh, to the 40s and 50s. But in the recent past, uh, what, what is your comment about the way that these methods have been used and that uh, both the oversight function of Congress and the corporate media in this country really have failed to uh, bring this information to light. It's available, but it's not uh, widely disseminated. Oh, that's that's absolutely correct. Uh, why Congress doesn't take a more active oversight role in, in what the CIA has done in the past and what it's doing today is uh, is beyond me. I don't I don't know why. Uh, I wish they would. I wish the mainstream media would objectively report uh, the news as as it's happening today and as it happened in the past. They came close maybe in 1975 with some of the uh, Olson and Rockefeller Commission revelations, but we now know that uh, even that commission suppressed uh, and covered up a a lot of the truth. But to to answer the first part of your question, I I think basically all of the drugs that were used in the 50s and 60s, I think to one extent or another are still being used today. Those that aren't being used have probably been replaced by much more effective drugs. But uh, we know for a fact that LSD has been used uh, both in this country uh, and at Guantanamo on a number of prisoners. Uh, Jose Padillo's uh, lawyers, he was one of the people first arrested after um, Mm 9-11, reported that LSD was used on him. Yeah. Well, and uh, the reports, more recent reports, indicate that uh, he is no longer mentally competent. No, I think they basically reduced him to a, to a state of childhood, probably a permanent state. Jeff could certainly speak to that better than I could. But And, and most of those programs with that very specific objective originated in the late 50s. Uh, specific programs with the the purpose of, quote, uh, inducing psychosis, creating psychosis, uh, unquote, of reducing redu- reducing personhood, uh, just changing somebody's complete behavior patterns in a, in a permanent sort of way. It seems that really um, uh, stress positions and uh, forced nudity are additions, recent additions, I guess in view of the uh, uh, Islamic culture, that uh, is connected to many of the people that we now detain and interrogate. But let's talk for a moment about uh, the case of uh, Khalid Sheikh Mohammed and the other four uh, so-called high-value detainees. Their trial is now in limbo because uh, Eric Holder, the attorney general, uh, tried to uh, stage it in New York City, and there have been uh, serious repercussions uh, these uh, outlandish claims by Mayor Bloomberg that uh, it would cost a billion dollars in security. 
But underlying the reticence to try uh, KSM and his uh, cohorts in U.S. federal court uh, is concern that uh, they will be forced to either use evidence tainted by torture and uh, probable use of uh, these psychoactive drugs, uh, or that uh, the defense would be able to show that uh, these individuals are no longer uh, mentally sound and really can't stand trial because of their treatment in the hands of U.S. Uh, agents and, uh, and contractors. Uh, Jeff, do you want to start on that? Yeah, you're absolutely right, Peter. The reason that they want to use these re- so-called redone military commissions and not put these uh, individuals into, um, uh, into the regular uh, court system is precisely because the military commissions allow leeway by the judges to use evidence um, uh, taken by uh, a tortured confession or otherwise. And also, of course, the individuals will not be as uh, public and able to sh- demonstrate to the public at large, because these will be a lot of publicity, a lot of attention by the press, probably by the world press, on any trials of KSM, Khalid Sheikh Mohammed, or any of the other high-value detainees. Now, there have been other trials in which torture was used upon prisoners. Jose Padilla is one, which mm-hmm. Hank mentioned. Re- most recently, Afias Sadiqui was another one. Both of those individuals were found guilty. Um, both of those individuals had been tortured, and um, um, the courts were able to keep evidence of that torture out of the court record. And um, I don't know that they would be able to do that with something. You know, it, it, those cases just didn't have as much public uh, spotlight upon them. It will be a lot harder to hide the fact of the torture when KSM goes to trial, unless, of course, it's held in a little courtroom in Guantanamo that they can't get anybody to. Mm-hmm. Because, Hank, yeah. Hank, your comment? Well, I, I agree with everything Jeff said. I think it's my understanding in the case of KSM that, that the Army's already on record as having having admitted that they tortured him and, and that they did receive some information uh, uh, through torturing him. But uh, the amusing thing is I think the Army's also made a statement recently at least I was in New York last week, and I heard that the Army's made a statement that they, they don't plan on using information that, that was drawn uh, from KSM through torture. They're going to use uh, only the information they got through non-torture. So how you make the distinction or how a jury or a judge makes a distinction is, is beyond me. Well, and uh, Jeff Kay, if, if the defense introduces a defense based not only on torture but mind-altering techniques that were used, including... Uh, these illicit drugs, uh, that that would seriously undermine the credibility of any prosecution. And in addition, we know that KSM has, uh, has, has talked uh, a lot, and he has taken credit for uh, actions and, uh, 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 you know, terrorist events that he couldn't possibly have been involved with, uh, yeah. including most uh, explicitly the shoe bomber Richard Reed. Right. Well, th- those uh, those claims may not actually end up being part of the trial. They have evidently on KSM anyway uh, evidence other evidence them um, from a computer disk, uh, you know, hard evidence that they feel that they could use, and they may decide that that's enough. I don't know how far they want to go. Certainly, if they get into any of the evidence produced through torture, 
in, in a number of these cases, and I believe KSM is one, the individual is tortured, and then they may not be tortured, and later interviewed, say, by the FBI or some other agency, CIA, whomever. Right. And they'll say, well, we, the, we're not using the torture evidence. We're using, using what they told the FBI later. And there's a real question, and this has come up in, civil, in, in uh, other criminal, and even uh, criminal trials in earlier, and I'm not an attorney, but uh, that one could, uh, attorneys could speak to who are experts in this, in which evidence uh, um, taken after torture, even though it's in an interview that would, did not indicate torture, can itself may not be used because it is uh, tainted by the fact of the previous torture. Well, in non-technical terms, though, if if the defense can establish that we fried KSM's brain, then uh, any comments he made under any conditions uh, are hardly credible. I certainly agree, but I've been amazed the past, uh, um, you know, ten years or so of the t- kind of things that, the, including under the Obama administration, that they try and get through, and will try and uh, push. Uh, certainly, statements made by Jose Padilla after torture were included. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and and he sits in prison today. Yes, Hank, go ahead. Well, one of the in in relationship to KSM, uh, yeah, I think we have this country has probably one of the best legal systems in the world, uh, theoretically. And when it works, it it works well. But I think in terms of KSM, at least based on statements I saw and heard the the vice president of the United States utter about, I think it was a week or so ago. Uh, I have serious doubts whether or not he's going to get a fair trial anyway, because the the vice president basically said he's going to be found guilty regardless. Obama has uh, has said much the same, and so is Eric Holder. Right. It's the prejudicial remarks they've made are stunning. Uh, particularly, get it thrown out of court, I think, but in a in a in a real court, a fair process, a real court, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Now let's talk for a moment about Binyam Mohammed a British resident who was uh, taken into custody. He was rendered to a third country. Uh, He was uh, held there and tortured. Uh, They cut his penis and put uh, some sort of of toxic compound or or liquid on it that uh, made his his skin burn. And he reports that he was drugged as well. And his case has drawn, uh, I think, important attention because his attempts to sue uh, Jeppesen Aviation, the division of Boeing based in San Jose here near me, that uh, essentially was the so-called torture taxi service uh, for the U.S. government, um, uh, that's been blocked by the state secret privilege. And that's under the Obama administration. And likewise, uh, the Obama team interfered as long as they could with the process in British courts as uh, Mohammed was uh, attempting to assert his rights and uh, uh, seek, uh, you know, exposure of what went wrong and perhaps damages for what occurred to him. And finally, in the last month or so, one of the highest courts in Britain uh, rebuffed the threats of the U.S. that we would uh, uh, somehow uh, uh, withdraw some of our intelligence sharing with Britain if they proceeded with this effort. Uh, the judge did not blink at this threat and has honored uh, the rights of Binyan Mohammed. Uh, Hank, what, what's your take on the, the Binyan Mohammed case and the extent that we are going to, to try to keep secret, things that are already out in the open? 
Well, I, is it all right if I toss this question to Jeff? Because Jeff is really the expert on this, and, and uh, quite honestly, everything I've learned, I've learned through the writings of Jeff. So. Go right ahead, Jeff. That's well, that's fine. Well, thank you. Thank you. you know, a lot of people at the ACLU and Center for Constitutional Rights who really are the true experts who have been working these cases. Um, the ACLU, of course, has the suit against the Boeing subsidiary. Uh, Jefferson data plan, Peter, that you were speaking about. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, yes, the Obama administration in this and in other cases have used uh, uh, state secrets claims to hide, to, to stop lawsuits from going forth, from having torture victims have their day in court against people who have kidnapped them and uh, tortured them. And in fact, according to the ACLU and, and again, CCR, um, the Obama administration has made claims for state secrets privilege above and beyond even that of the Bush administration. Mm-hmm. What I think uh, is very, one, one point about the Binyam Mohammed case that I think is very important is that he and Jose Padilla, who we've spoken of before, were the two people who supposedly were fingered by Abu Zubaydah as being uh, um, the, the people in charge of uh, unleashing a dirty bomb in the United States. And uh, this was uh, a, a case put forward by John Ashcroft, Dick Cheney, George Bush, and the others um, in the immediate aftermath in the months following 9-11 mm-hmm. and the anthrax attacks to whip up fear um, in the United States so that they could pass the Patriot Act and uh, uh, other uh, do their, their wiretapping, etc. Um, there was no dirty bomb plot. Binyam Mohammed was, uh, uh, and Jose Padilla were set up False confessions were extorted under waterboarding and other torture out of Abu Zubaydah. And uh, this, is a, uh, uh, this is not something that happened accidentally. This is something that was um, planned. And it was, uh, um, they told, Binyam Mohammed um, in, tells his story, and people can look it up online, and says he was told to say this. Uh, he was told to finger this person. He was told to do this. Um, a, a big part of the torture that is used is to... Um, in fact, I was surprised to hear Mark Thiessen, a pro-torture advocate, say this on an interview the other day, is used not to get information, but to get cooperation. And the kinds of cooperation they want uh, oftentimes isn't just information, but um, uh, the production of false confessions or the turning of individuals to be uh, double agents um, at times. So uh, the, the torture is used to get control over individuals and to use them for the will of the state. And, and the Binyam Mohammed case is a, is a prime example. The man is very lucky to be alive yeah. and uh, really a hero in my eyes for coming forth. It, it takes a lot of courage. Almost every other torture victim who's come out, um, with a few exceptions, uh, like Mo- Moazim Beg, who runs Cage Prisoners, yes. have, have tried to, you know, basically try to get their lives back together, their broken lives, if they can. So Binyam Mohammed takes a lot of courage to speak out about, in his case, what both the British and the U.S. state uh, uh, did to him. Mm-hmm. And Hank Alberelli, we'll come back to you in a couple of minutes here and uh, take up the thread of Binyam Mohammed and compare, as you did in this article, to a case going back uh, to uh, Dmitry Dimitrov, uh, a uh, Bulgarian uh, uh, individual who was held by the United States many uh, decades ago. Uh, But, Jeff, before I uh, say goodbye to you, I I just wanted to get uh, an additional comment because Dick Cheney has become more and more brazen, and he feels uh, that he has immunity 
and the Obama administration has essentially granted it to him, and I'm deeply troubled by that. But he talks openly about uh, his support of waterboarding, and he talks about it in the context of, quote-unquote, production of intelligence. And we know, and I've, I've talked to uh, Vietnam veterans who were held uh, in the Hanoi Hilton with John McCain, uh, who uh, knew the torture techniques that were used on them. And they can tell you that when you're tortured, you'll say anything. You'll, you'll cough up what your cap- captors uh, are asking for, anything to stop what's going on. And so when Cheney talks about the production of intelligence, what's really hard to separate is whose reality he's referring to. Because it's not a rational standard to imagine that you can get people to cough up uh, so-called intelligence under these circumstances and then act on that. And we've seen the misdirections that are uh, uh, apparent to us, and we must assume that there are many others where we responded to faulty intelligence. Uh, one was, of course, the case of the mobile weapons labs uh, in, in Iraq before we invaded. But there have to be others that haven't surfaced yet. And, and I, I just wonder, uh, and, and I'll ask Hank about this a little bit later too, but when you become briefed on black ops as a new president of the United States, for example, do you enter an alternate reality? where torture and the so-called production of intelligence has some meaning. Well, sadly, evidently, that does seem to be the case if we can take the example of the Obama administration. Barack Obama came out strongly at first um, with executive orders uh, banning torture, closing CIA prisons, claiming that he would close Guantanamo within a year. But the fact of the matter is um, they, they had him kind of set up, and at this point he's backtracked on a number of issues. For one thing, they'd already planted a torture program within uh, the Army Field Manual called Appendix M of that manual. They, um, as we found out in some articles in the New York Times and the Washington Post late last year, while Obama closed all the CIA black site prisons, evidently he did not close the um, joint, the JSOC, Joint Service uh, um, Joint Special Operations Command prisons, as, as still operate at Balgram and elsewhere. Mm-hmm. Well, and just a postscript on that, Anand Gopal, who is a reporter who was working for the Wall Street Journal, uh, told me a few weeks ago that there are eight additional sites uh, in Afghanistan uh, beyond Bagram. Mm-hmm. Right. Oh, it, 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 wow, I'm going <laughs> to... That's incredible. I'm not surprised, though. Yeah. The, uh, to make a little plug for an article, by the way, I have coming out at Truth Out tomorrow, mm-hmm. we will see that internal DOD documents and memos going back at le- you know and, and struggles going back at least to 2005 and most likely before show that in fact even within DOD it had been considered that waterboarding was too dangerous to use um, even on students even under the controlled conditions they had and and there was a big bureaucratic battle to try and get the one holdout school. Um, the Navy Sears School in San Diego mm-hmm. at North Island to um, to actually uh, finally get rid of it. So Cheney and John Hughes out there doing the same thing, and these people promoting waterboard and the productivity of the intense interrogation de- techniques are liars on many levels, so many levels it's hard to answer in a quick soundbite. Almost everything you hear from them is a twisting of the truth or an outright lie. Yeah. Um, the... Uh, whether or not one gets intelligence, 
you know, the, the FBI complained, and we have this in documents now, and it's, I think, been widely reported before, that they spent countless hours, wasted time, running down leads that made no sense, that essentially were tortured out of individuals. Mm-hmm. And we certainly know that in the most famous case of, uh, I would say, of um, Ibn al-Libi, who was tortured uh, um, in an Egyptian prison rendered there by the United States and coughed up the information that Saddam Hussein had uh, chemical weapons, weapons of mass destruction that he intended to use, was, of course, as he later recanted, a lie. And it had been forced out of him by um, burying uh, burying him underground and or the waterboard, it's unclear, or perhaps both. Um, Ibn al-Libi was... Also claimed a suicide in a Libyan prison last year, so we'll never be able to hear the story. Only uh, weeks, apparently, before he finally was going to get a chance to speak to an attorney. Yeah, Jeff, before you go, and by the way, the Truth Out article you're talking about will be available on uh, March the 4th, and uh, so you can reference that when you go to truthout.org to look for it. And before you go, Jeff, anything you'd like to add? <laughs> Just I'm still in shock about what you said about the uh, the eight other black site prisons. Yeah. The, the the arrogance of the Obama administration to continually trot out how they closed the CIA black site prisons when really they had just shifted it over the administration to another secretive agency is, is just mind-blowing. It certainly is. Jeffrey Kay, thank you very much for joining us. Okay, thank you very much. Good to talk with you again. We continue with uh, H.P. Alberelli, Jr., that's Hank Alberelli, and uh, I want you to, uh, if, if you're at all interested, go to his website, uh, which, uh, tell me what it is, Jeff, I don't have it in front of me. Alberelli.net, there it is. Yes, Alberelli.net, or, or there's another related to the book, it's uh, aterriblemistake.com. Okay, and that is the title of the new book, A Terrible Mistake. And before we dive into the book, I'd like you to just sketch for people the parallels drawn in the article uh, that we referred to from Truth Out uh, about Binyan Muhammad's treatment and that of uh, a man who was detained uh, back in, what, the 1950s. Uh, yes, the, the early 1950s. Right? Yeah. Uh, go ahead and tell us about uh, Dimitrov. Well, it's the, the case of Dimitrov is a, a perfect example of, of the old, what is the old adage, as much as things change, they stay the same. Uh, uh, a, a lot of people are under the impression that as a result of 9-11 and the Patriot Act that this country has recently embarked on this 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 course of insanity where we're we're torturing people and we're subjecting people to rendition which is basically kidnapping uh holding them uh without any rights whatsoever for for months and months or years and years as is the case in in Guantanamo but uh in actuality in reality uh this didn't start just recently in the last last deco, decade or so. It actually started uh, almost immediately after the Second World War, when the, when the reality of the Cold War kicked in, and and the reality of the Cold War was real. A lot of people use that as a as a buffer or an excuse for for a lot of the crimes that that were committed from the early fifties on. But uh, again, I don't think it's any excuse, but uh, in a nutshell, everything that's happening today was happening back then. And as as we look at this, uh, what Cheney called going to the dark side uh, after 9-11, there really is continuity. 
And I am one of those people who was duped, at least to some extent, and I pay pretty close attention. I had heard of Project MK Ultra uh, before I read your book, and I, I knew parts of the story. Um, but I guess the only piece that's missing for me, and it, it probably uh, is is explained in the narrative of your book later on, and I'll, I'll certainly finish the book and get to that, but was there, in fact, an interruption in the use of uh, these kinds of tactics, which are clearly a violation of our laws, our policies, and uh, the treaties that we are signed to that are, in fact, uh, legally binding on the United States, was there any interruption uh, after the Rockefeller Commission and the Church Commission reports in the 1970s? Well, there might have been a brief interruption, and, and by interruption, I think that's the perfect word you're using, interruption. There, there, wasn't, there wasn't any order to stop or cease and desist. Uh, I think there was a brief interruption because of the embarrassment and the, the struggle to, to cope with a lot of the information that was coming out, and that interruption probably stretched from, from the, the point in time when, when William Colby uh, was in his final years as DCI of, 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 the, of, of the CIA, the mm-hmm. director of the Central Intelligence, until about the time that George Bush, the elder, uh, took over. And I think about that time, uh, the dust was settling uh, over the MK Ultra rev- revelations and the, and the Frank Olson revelations, and the agency and the administration had a pretty good handle on it. And mm-hmm. things. Things kind of swung back into into full force uh, with with the agency and, and various government agencies really learning their lesson in terms of how to uh, how to keep things even more secret. And take a couple of minutes here, Hank, to explain why the case of Frank Olson and uh, his death in 1953 uh, really is significant, and the cover up of it and the programs that he was working on and the, uh, the LSD that he was exposed to that uh, quite apparently uh, took him around the bend. Tell us why this case is so central to the broader issues of these tactics used by our government. Well, I think one of the, the primary reasons it's so central is because it's, it's, a, it's a central example in government deception. Uh, of of the people, uh, Frank Olson died, allegedly committed suicide in November of 1953, and that death was so strange. Uh, I mean, briefly, it was a, a man dressed in his underwear, his underpants, and his undershirt goes out a closed, shuttered, curtained window at 2:30 in the morning and dies on the sidewalk. And we're told to believe that he committed suicide, uh, and it's just absurd. And and there was a CIA handler in the room, but nonetheless, the cover-up kicked into motion almost immediately uh, after his death. The New York City Police Department was part of it. Uh, the CIA virtually flooded New York with with agents to cover things up and to talk to the police and the district attorney and whoever, whoever was involved. Uh, and, the, and the case just lay there like that. It was a suicide. And nobody suspected a thing until 1975 when the Rockefeller Commission inadvertently, we're led to believe, revealed uh, the death of Frank Olson. 
without even naming him in their report. That was sort of the ultimate insult to the Olson family. Of course, the minute they saw the the one or two sentences that, that summarized his death, a man went through a hotel window in New York City, they, they knew it was uh, their husband, their son, their father that that was being spoken about. But at the same time, the cover-up was continuing. Uh, the story changed just slightly uh, to the effect that nine days before he committed suicide, uh, allegedly committed suicide, he was given LSD at a, at a secret retreat in Deep Creek Lake, Maryland. And but again, he, he, that, he that was, wasn't he, the truth either. And it was given to him without his knowledge. Yeah, it was given the story that came out. It was never really, really clear, but but briefly, the story that came out, it was given to him and, and a few other people that attended this secret meeting as a lark. It was they'd had dinner, and they were having after-dinner drinks, and somebody thought it would be amusing to slip LSD into a number of the drinks. Uh, of course, now we know we know that wasn't true, and in 1975, that was just a continuation uh, of the cover-up. And, of course, in 75, the American public found that so shocking that the CIA, that the government would do something like that, that nobody really looked closely at the facts going back to 1953 and, and said, look, none of this makes any sense. Let's really get to the bottom of it. To the credit of the Olson family attorneys that they had retained in 1975, David Terrace David being the main attorney. Uh, I interviewed David extensively for the book, uh, spent months and months talking back and forth with him on the phone and through the Internet, and he told me that, that none of the case made sense to him, and he really wanted to continue. He thought they had the government in a good position to really get, get at the truth because the, the thing, the whole case stunk to high heaven with him, and he suspected murder. But uh, unfortunately, Alice Olson, Frank Olson's wife, uh, had just had too much uh, and couldn't stomach uh, handling the case any longer and, and took the $750,000 that the government extended, which actually was $1.5 million to begin with. Uh, and then there was a prog- problem in getting Congress to to approve the money, and it was mm-hmm. reduced to $750,000, and and that was the end of the case again uh, for another 25 years. And, and Hank, uh, you did a marvelous job in the book. Uh, it, it's hard to relate to people, the rich detail. And you must uh, be drowning in documents that you got <laughs> under FOIA or from other sor- sources. Uh, but you were able to, in many respects, lift the, uh, the, the uh, barriers uh, imposed by compartmentalization, which is how intelligence operations work. That uh, you only know what you need to know, and uh, you know that prevents leaks and and other disclosures, and uh, uh, allows a lot of latitude uh, for those who are inside a, a given compartment of of information or actions. Uh, and in lifting those, um, it, it's I, I want to compare it to uh, LSD experiences that I've had. Uh, in my youth, and it's been many years, but uh, I, uh, you know, on a recreational basis, uh, used drugs that were purported to be LSD. I, of course, uh, had no way of, of testing them or finding out exactly what they were. 
Um, but uh, I went on trips, and it was fascinating because the way I describe that experience to people who've, who've never done it is that it's like uh, taking the divider out of an ice cube tray <laughs> and that the, the, you know, the partitions of life and of, of individual networks um, uh, disappear, and there's a kind of lateral uh, continuity uh, that you can experience. And it's, it's very interesting. It can also be very scary. Uh, on a couple of episodes, I, I freaked out, and uh, ultimately I decided I didn't want to do that again. But it, it did inform me in a lot of ways. And what is bizarre is that uh, our government really uh, was the first to bring LSD from Switzerland, from the Sandoz lab- Laboratories. And later on, it was being produced uh, under government contract by Eli Lilly in Indianapolis. Uh, I have no idea what labs uh, the stuff I took came from. But uh, when, when you were able to pull these partitions and the car- compartmentalization out, what you discovered is that there's a very small group of people, and that these, uh, this was centered at uh, Fort Dietrich in Maryland, which people in the recent past uh, will note is the site where the uh, alleged anthrax uh, uh, sender, Dr. Bruce Ivins, who mm-hmm. at least is the purported uh, uh, culprit there, who has been fingered after a suspicious suicide. And these suicides are a thread that runs through the book. Anybody who uh, became inconvenient um, often either just disappeared or took their own life. So I've been rambling here for a minute, but go ahead and respond to that because your book is remarkable in the way you were able to forensically go back and piece together these elements that were not uh, connected at the time, at least uh, for the vast majority of people touched by it. Mm-hmm. No, I, I thank you for those remarks, and, and I did. I spent a great deal of time connecting uh, so many things. It was like just having a a giant jigsaw puzzle dumped on the floor and and having to spend the time to put it together. I spent a little over 10 years on the book, and, and I did file FOIA after FOIA and appealed rejections uh, numerous numerous times. And, and on occasion, that was very rewarding. I'd, I'd get the documents that I wanted, and, and occasionally, uh, I don't know if the research angel was at work, occasionally they, I'd even get... Uh, a document that was unredacted, that was totally whole. I think in a couple of cases that was a mistake because I was asked for documents back, and I think what they wanted to do was double-check uh, exactly what they had given to me, and that was a result of an article I'd written before the book came out, and and they were surprised that I had the information. But in terms of, of what you said about compartmentalization, one of the things I learned in the process of writing the book and reading all of these CIA documents, and conservatively, I've, I've probably read over 100,000 pages of documents, uh, mm-hmm. was how compartmentalized the CIA actually was in the 1950s and 60s, to the extent that, that really blew my mind is you had divisions and sections of the agency actually spying on other divisions and sections and writing reports to their chiefs or their division directors saying, uh, you know, Sidney Gottlieb and technical services is doing this, and, and there's a rumor that, you know, they, they did an experiment in Maryland that, that resulted in the death uh, of a U.S. Army researcher, that being Olson. But it, w- it was just shocking that rather than it was so compartmentalized and secret that, 
that a department literally right next door to Gottlieb's department actually had to spy on his department to find out what happened to Olson. And you cite one memo that described the dosing of Olson as successful. Right. Uh, <laughs> I, I don't well, know. It, we, it, we can only impute what that meant, but uh, what, what, was, what was deemed successful when one of their key uh, scientists took his own life? Well, it, it was successful, and, and as the book, I, I know you're not finished with the book yet, but uh, the, he, Olson did not take his life. Olson was murdered, uh, subsequently the, the title of the book. And he was murdered, I'll, I'll give a brief synopsis of why he was murdered. Olson was very unhappy with his employment at Fort Detrick. Uh, he, things had changed there. He'd gone from being... Uh, a military a U.S. Army researcher there uh, to becoming a civilian researcher. Olson was a fairly arrogant, outspoken man. He didn't like the discipline of the Army at all, and he had grown very tired of his job. Whether or not he was having any pangs of conscience or, or was troubled by things he saw, we don't know for sure because he left no letters, no diary, nothing whatsoever, and and uh, we have a couple of vague statements that his, his wife made about his coming home a few days before he, he died and telling her that he, made, he had made a terrible mistake. And he told her that two or three times. Right. So it was so terrible he didn't want to talk about it, but he'd get around to, to explaining it to her. But, well, he didn't uh, because he, he went to New York and he was, he was tossed out, out the window by two foreign nationals who had been retrained, uh, retained by the Central Intelligence Agency, recruited when both men were in New York City. Uh, they were both French nationals. Uh, they were in New York City as part of the, the early phases of the French Connection selling heroin. Uh, and both had been arrested. One had been sent to Atlanta Penitentiary. Another had been sent to uh, Ellis Island, awaiting deportation. Uh, but because of the CIA's alliance with the Federal Narcotics Bureau, uh, both men had skills that, that both the Narcotics Bureau and the CIA thought were, were usable. So neither man was, was deported, and they ended up being in the Statler Hotel on the evening of November 28, 1953, and tossed Frank Olson out the window. Mm -hmm. And one of the reasons, one of the primary reasons Olson was murdered uh, is because he, he was so dissatisfied, and that dissatisfaction on his part, coupled with his arrogance and outspokenness, uh, Olson was very indiscreet. And, and talked to a number of inappropriate people about experiments that had been conducted uh, during his years uh, at, at Camp Dietrich, and, and experiments that were ultra, ultra secret and that just should not have been spoken about to anyone who didn't have a Q, a Q clearance at the time, which was the highest top secret clearance. And one of those experiments was an incident that took place in a, a French town in August of 1951, whereby uh, scientists at Camp Dietrich within the Special Operations Division, which was Olson's division, uh, with funding and direction from the CIA, CIA actually dosed a small town in France called Pont-Saint-Esprit uh, with LSD, mm -hmm. uh, launched a field experiment, and as a result, about 500 people in that town went stark raving mad, or a full day, 
two, possibly three people committed suicide, and 40 to 50 people were carted off to uh, local insane asylums. Uh, and that incident, to, until my book was published a couple months ago, has gone completely unexplained and, is, and has been uh, written historically as, as a mystery. The only, the only solution, the only uh, so-called viable explanation for that incident uh, came from two scientists who were dispatched the same week as, of the incident in 1951, who explained, who explained the cause as uh, uh, infection in bread, ergot infection, mm-hmm. which is a natural process that occurs in rye bread. But, uh, and a lot of people believe that, but what I discovered, uh, and it really didn't take all that much doing, was that both the scientists that were dispatched to Pont saint Esprit uh, came from the Sandoz Chemical Company, mm-hmm. Basel, Switzerland. And at the same time that they were there trying to sincerely find out what had happened in this village, they were also working for the CIA, and they were the main and sole supplier of LSD to the Central Intelligence Agency in 1951, 52, and 53. And, of course, that was extremely secret at that point in time. As a result of that, as you mentioned earlier, the agency became very uncomfortable with the fact that not only did Sandoz know about that experiment, uh, but that they were the sole supplier to the CIA. So they induced the Lilly Drug Company in Indiana to actually steal the the formula, the patent for LSD, and and to replicate it, which Lilly did successfully. And the agency from that point forward was was able to... uh, to get all of their LSD supplied domestically uh, from Lilly, and they didn't have to deal with Sandoz anymore. And do you know how it became an American street drug? Well, you know that's a, that's a good question. And what what this, the account you were give the personal account you were giving a few minutes ago uh-huh. uh, made me really think about that. I think in large part it became an Amer- American street drug because of a number of the people who were working either directly or indirectly with the CIA, guys like Al Hubbard, who's considered the Johnny Appleseed of, of LSD, who, who really saw tremendous potential in the drug uh, and didn't consider it you know, a, a drug that should be weaponized, but something that should be used to, to open people's minds and to, to expand consciousness. Uh, and, and they had a hefty supply of, of Sandoz LSD, in the late 50s and, and spread it around very, very liberally. Mm-hmm. And, and actually it was the, the LSD that uh, Timothy Leary and Richard Alpert, uh, who's known I think as Baba Rondas now, right. uh, initially received was Sandoz acid. Well, and you talk uh, about an incident with Ken Kesey in La Honda, which is right? uh, uh, near San Jose up on uh, Skyline Boulevard there. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and we know that MK Ultra uh, did have uh, tentacles in the Bay Area. Um, mm-hmm. I know of, of stories of people who were dosed uh, without knowledge at the Veterans Administration Hospital in Menlo Park. Absolutely. And, uh, take a moment here also to talk about the uh, biowarfare experiment. I, I can't place the date offhand, but it was in the 50s. Uh, where a Navy ship was uh, a mile or so off the coast of San Francisco and points south toward Half Moon Bay, and they sprayed an aerosol uh, bio-agent 
uh, into the air uh, just to see what would happen and far, how far inland um, it would go. They were checking the, the efficiency and efficacy, and a number of people got sick, and uh, some people may have died from it. Yeah, there actually, there actually was, I think, one or two confirmed deaths as a result of that experiment in, in the 50s. I think that was 1952, and Frank Olson was actually part of that experiment and was there off the coast of San Francisco when, when that was conducted. His expertise on uh, his expertise traditionally have been reported as as falling into the area of anthrax, but that's not true. His expertise are really in the in the area of safety clothing and protecting uh, uh, people at Fort Detrick from from getting any kind of blowback or whatever from their own experiments, and that's why he was in San Francisco at the time. But uh, in terms of the LSD experiments that the CIA sponsored. There were there were activities all over the Bay Area. Actually, the the LSD that Kesey was given at Menlo Park uh, at a veterans hospital was part of a CIA funded experiment there. Hmm. Uh, and a number of the people that were working there realized that the drug uh, the drug had some uh, attractiveness. And during off hours one night, I think Kesey was working as an aide or a janitor. Or both, uh, mm-hmm. and somebody said, "Here, you got to try this drug," hmm. uh, and he did. And <laughs> thus, were born the the merry pranksters as yeah. a result of that. So, I guess the CIA can take credit for that. Well, I, I don't want to pass myself off as any expert, and not to belabor my own uh, 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 stories here. But the the critical thing to me is that no one ever slipped acid to me. I always mm. took it when I could control the environment. And, uh, you know, with with knowledge mm-hmm. and I can only imagine um, how how deeply frightening it would be uh, to have the onset of the uh, the effect, the symptoms of this drug uh, without knowing where it came from. Well, it would be it would be absolutely horrifying. And and in my book, I think I cite. Oh, at least 10 or 10 to 10 to a dozen cases where where that that actual scenario unfolded mm-hmm. where, where someone uh, because of some CIA uh, created scenario or situation uh, was given LSD. There was a fella uh, in 1952 from New York, one of the most promising artists uh, in the world. His name was Stanley Glickman who, who just by chance uh, when he was in a cafe in Paris in 1952 encountered a group of CIA officials. He didn't know they were CIA officials. Uh, he thought they were basically American businessmen, and they had a, converse, a political-based conversation. Uh, and, of course, Stanley was fairly liberal. They weren't. And, again, as, as a lark, uh, after, when Stanley got up to go to the bathroom, uh, somebody dosed his wine uh, with LSD, and he came back and drank it. Uh, and within about an hour, uh, starting feeling the effects, but had no idea whatsoever what was happening to him, and literally uh, terrified, went running through the streets of Paris uh, for almost an entire night before he checked himself into a hospital. And, of course, he was diagnosed in the hospital with paranoid schizophrenia because mm-hmm. nobody, nobody had any clue that he was under the influence of a drug and and eventually went back to New York City, never painted again, uh, basically c- 
couldn't understand what, what had happened to him and lived a, a very secluded life with two or three dogs. Uh, but fortunately, right before his death by heart attack in, in the, I think it was 1977, he learned about the MKUltra program mm -hmm. and finally realized uh, what had happened to him. And you have anecdotes of children uh, that were dosed and... You know, we, we have this great revulsion of the human experiments that the Nazis conducted at their death camps, mm -hmm. and it's appropriate. Um, but we see that even uh, outside of a, a an actual military war, I do understand the context of the Cold War, and I don't dismiss it, mm -hmm. um, but that this guy, uh, Gottlieb, uh, was, uh, you know, dosing people who had no idea and uh, it's hard to tell whether he was amused by it or whether it was, uh, you know, uh, in his mind, true science. Uh, but uh, there's also another anecdote of suspicion that uh, a, a team of uh, Nixon aides who were on a flight in 1972 uh, were dosed with LSD and, or something like it. Uh, so th this is, uh, it's really, what's the right word? It, it's just so gruesome. Uh, to imagine that these people were so uh, uh, detached from basic hu humanity that uh, they could just give this out to people and see what happened, and uh, they appear rather nonchalant, at least based on your narrative. No, you're absolutely right, and I think in large part that's a good reason for, and there's a pretty long account that's a good reason for, for why the CIA in 1973 uh, virtually destroyed all of the MK Ultra files because they they didn't want it to become public. I think uh, I mean, my book is 900 pages long and it goes into a lot of what happened under MK Ultra and Project Artichoke, which was also a horrifying program. But but again, it was without the main documentation. And I think if if we had the full picture, we'd be even we'd be even more shocked. They did give LSD to, to children. They they gave LSD through a through a contract. They washed through a front organization called the Fund for Human Ecology uh, to a woman who specialized in in working with with children who were diagnosed with with various uh, mental afflictions. Whether they were real or not, I really don't know. But her name she's named in the book, Dr. Loretta Bender, uh, and she gave. She gave LSD repeatedly, not just once or twice, but but two or three times over several weeks to children, uh, and tried to measure the effect. And from what I could tell from reading all her scientific papers, there really was no effect. And and the really frightening part is that there was no follow-up uh, a year, five years, ten years later. So God only knows what, what happened to some of these children as they matured. We do know uh, in some cases, some isolated cases, that some of the people that took part in these experiments, like the Unabomber, Ted Kwasinski, uh, was, was part of a CIA-funded LSD experiment at Harvard University, and we all know what happened to him. Uh, so it really begs, begs the question, the questions... Uh, how many other people uh, are out there, and, and what was the result that the, the drugs uh, used on them had, and, and you know what horrors were wreaked on on the United States or mankind as a result of that? 
And Hank, in the incredible research and the, the countless interviews that you did, were there any, um, any claims that this was beneficial, that, uh, to go back to Dick Cheney, that uh, there was the production of intelligence, or, uh, you know, were any uh, worthwhile goals uh, in terms of intelligence, and I'm not talking about, uh, you know, assassinating people, mm-hmm. were any worthwhile goals achieved as a result of the use of, uh, of these drugs uh, in, in the intelligence uh, process? There was, there was one general statement that was made in 1978 by Sidney Gottlieb when he appeared before a, a special subcommittee, a Senate subcommittee of the Congress, where, where he said he, he would not go into detail, but he said that the agency did learn a lot through its experiments uh, with LSD, and he, and he did find it beneficial. I, I had the, the opportunity to interview Gottlieb right before he died, about oh, eight months before he died. I, I spoke to him, it was either four or five times on, on the telephone at length, and I was in the process of going to visit him when he became ill and, and died suddenly. But uh, what's interesting, he told me he personally took LSD over 40 times, mm-hmm. uh, and that he, he benefited benefited from from the drug tremendously. He didn't want to go into a, a lot of detail, but uh, he actually said he, he had contemplated in his 70s taking it again, but didn't feel like he had the, the right environment. Uh, so he certainly benefited. <laughs> but I think, I think there's countless people, including 500 U.S. servicemen, I mean 5,000 U.S. servicemen, uh, who didn't benefit from the drug, and, and primarily because they were used as unwitting guinea pigs, and they had no idea uh, what was happening. One more question. I, you're very generous with your time, and I appreciate it, but um, you suggest in the book that the allegations that North Korea used brainwashing techniques on U.S. prisoners of war in the 1950-53 to 53 period was the frame of justification for the U.S. development of these techniques. Mm-hmm. And you suggest that that's false, that uh, actual POWs say, well, you know, they, they, they use certain techniques, but not mind control and not psychoactive drugs. But so, I, I, I'm sorry, go yeah, ahead. I, I just want to know to what extent uh, we created that propaganda in order to justify the nefarious tactics that we ourselves were using. But to, to a tremendous extent, we created that propaganda. And, and a, a lot of people, perhaps a lot of your listeners who, who are of the appropriate age will remember a man called Edward Hunt, Hunter, who supposedly was an independent journalist uh, aligned with a couple of newspapers in Florida, who wrote two or three uh, fairly good books about... Uh, specifically on the subject of, of brainwashing. Uh, and it was these books that, that allegedly triggered uh, a, lot of the, uh, a lot of the subsequent CIA programs, including the LSD program. But uh, what people didn't know and what I reveal in the book is Edward Hunter actually was a secret uh, employee for the CIA and had been instructed to write those books. Uh, and to to drum up a lot of fear and concern about about brainwashing 
techniques not only in in red china at that time but on the part of the russians but but i was unable to find and i don't think anybody can find any solid evidence that the red chinese uh, at that point in time or the russians were using lsd against anyone they were using conventional interrogation techniques and indoctrination techniques but but not drugs i think i think uh just in summary to answer the question i think the main impetus uh, for using LSD came from a small clique of uh, doctors, many of whom uh, who had some sort of alliance with the Nazis in the past or, or had trained in, at the Kaiser Wilhelm Institute uh, prior to the Second World War, were, had become so enamored of drugs and, and LSD that they, they really did a pretty good salesman job on the LSD and on, on the CIA with LSD and, and talk them into uh, allegedly recognizing the tremendous, tremendous potential of the drug when it really, the, the, the potential of the drug was really sort of iffy when it really came right down to it. Nobody, nobody knew what to do with the drug. And, and as you well know, the drug was fairly hard to control. It, it would take you different places uh, at, at different times. You never really knew where you were going to go. Mm-hmm. Uh, it could be a, a pleasurable experience, maybe tainted with a little paranoia, but uh, it, I mean, in a lot of ways, it's an unpredictable drug. It's not, it's not like aspirin where it's going to you know, give you some relief or cure a headache, uh, and, that's the re- and, and that's the purpose. That's the mm-hmm. objective. LSD uh, <laughs> has a lot of effects. Uh, and it really kind of depends on your environment, your mood, your mental state. <laughs> so there were no real common denominators that could be used with the drug. And as, as you described Olson's uh, reaction, uh, as he was being uh, sent to New York to see a guy who's purported to be a psychiatrist, mm-hmm. uh, reminded me of a time uh, we were driving on the Pennsylvania Turnpike mm-hmm. and pulled off at a rest stop. And uh, I just, uh, you know, went in a certain direction. It's hard to describe. But uh, uh, my wife at the time was, was taking over the wheel, and I would keep pulling on the parking brake. And mm-hmm. just saying, nope, I'm not ready. We can't go now. <laughs> and so, yeah, it's highly unpredictable, and uh, there, there were some certainly beneficial aspects. But again, uh, if you didn't know uh, what was causing these uh, hallucinations... Uh, it, it certainly could be very destructive and on a long-term basis. Oh, extremely destructive. And I can't imagine what would go through a child's mind, uh, you know, a six- or seven-year-old uh, under the influence of LSD. I mean, first of all, you couldn't even explain to them what was going to happen anyway. Yeah. Uh, and that's why, I, 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 you know, a lot of times when I really think about it, I'm concerned about uh, what happened to a lot of these people. I mean, there's theories that a lot of the serial killers... Uh, we've seen in the past and even today uh, were subjects from from those experiments, uh, mm-hmm. but the documentation is pretty scant so far. But I don't put it beyond belief at all. I don't, you know, put it beyond uh, having had happen. Yeah. Well, Hank, I, I want to thank you and uh, commend you for excellent work. This is detailed, uh, extremely. Uh, I, I mean, I can't emphasize. How, how well sourced the information is and how painstaking uh, your narrative is in describing this. It's highly credible. And I, I just want to ask if there has been any interest from, say, Frontline, Dateline, 
or any other television magazine show that is willing to take on the revelations in your book and put them into a coherent narrative. Yeah, there, there has been, in the last couple of weeks, there has been some interest. And I, I taped uh, oh, an interview with NBC, what was it, uh, the week before last, uh, and I think it's going to air in January, uh, in July, I'm sorry, uh, this coming July. And there's been feelers uh, from from other media outlets. Uh, there hasn't there hasn't been any attention from the, the mainstream print press mm-hmm. to date. But they might, you know, they might have to pay attention at some point in time. It's just easier for them uh, for them to ignore it. I, what I what I would like to see is is uh, some serious attention in terms of maybe somebody at Congress or in a position of authority where somebody would say, well, look, it's time to hold time to hold people accountable for this, you know, at the, at the very least uh, to maybe apologize in general to people and, and, and compensate people for, for the horrible damage that's been done as a result of Well, unfortunately, the, these serious errors have been compounded in recent years, and it's hard to find anybody who's clean. Exactly. There's complicity exactly. In, in some respects. I'm not saying that members of Congress actively promoted uh, the use of torture, but they've certainly tolerated it, and, and they're, they're not too interested in, in pursuing. And, and I'm, I'm ashamed that the Obama administration has essentially granted immunity uh, to those who clearly violated the law. And, and even in the case where Holder uh, lowered the bar to the point of saying, well, if they went beyond the, uh, the framework of the John U. J. Bybee memos, well, we know that Scott Horton's revelations of those three detainees at Guantanamo who were killed uh, all in one night, that certainly rises above the, the low bar that Holder has set. Yet the Justice Department, according to Horton, has essentially closed the books on that. No, you're absolutely right, and Scott Horton uh, really deserves a, a medal of honor for revealing that. They, anybody that believes that those were suicides is just uh, is really, really seriously fooling themselves. But you used the expression earlier, alternate reality, and in in terms of Dick Cheney, and I think uh, I'm certainly no fan of Dick Cheney at all. I'm just the opposite, if anything. But I, I think men like Dick Cheney, uh, live in alternate realities, and I think a lot of our senators and Congress people uh, live in alternate realities. Uh, Washington D.C. is a, a fairly bizarre place to an ordinary, an ordinary person, uh, and you get seduced uh, by the power that's constantly in the air, and you, and you adopt this attitude where you just know what's better for people, and and uh, and people of no consequence meaning people with no money or real power, are expendable. And to me, that, that type of attitude is just inexcusable on the part of the president, the vice president, a past vice president, or anybody in Congress. Uh, and I think when, when you start to see that uh, really spread, you realize, uh, you realize the kind of serious uh, problems that face this country and, and this so-called democracy. Well, and it inevitably fuels the conspiracy theories, whether it's about the Kennedy assassination or, more recently, the 9-11 events. Absolutely. And Absolutely. because of the history and the continuity, uh, it's very hard to dismiss. I'm one of those uh, so-called tin hat people, 
and I'm, I'm very careful about the way I describe this, Hank. I don't mm-hmm. believe the official story, and I don't believe the work of the 9-11 Commission. That said, well, I, I don't either. I, I, can't, <laughs> I, can't, I can't prove uh, what really happened or how it was done or who's responsible, but uh, I know that the story we've been told is bullshit. Oh, I, I agree 100%. I, th- I think it's bullshit also, and, and there's just so many holes in the conventional story and so many questions that need to be answered. And I'm not saying, uh, uh, by, by expressing doubts, I'm not saying that George Bush or Dick Cheney did it. I wouldn't put it beyond them, but I'm not making that charge. All I'm saying is, look, don't, don't give us this baloney yeah. or these half-truths. Tell us the truth. We, we, can, you know, we can swallow it. We can take it. And uh, we're we're freighting, you know, we're paying the freight on all this stuff. Mm-hmm. I mean, we deserve answers. We deserve the truth. Yeah, it's a pleasure to meet you, Hank. And okay. uh, thanks again for the work you've done. The book is a terrible mistake: the murder of Frank Olson and the CIA's secret Cold War experiments. Look him up as H. P. Alberelli Jr. Thank you, thank, Hank. Thank you very much, Peter. It's Tell a Friend Month here at the Peter B. Collins Show. I'd be much obliged if you'd send an email or a link to my podcast to a friend or maybe 10 of them. Our goal is to double our listening base in the month of March. Just tell them to log on to iTunes or PeterBCollins.com. We're sponsored by the Organic Wine Company. Now that you're eating organic, it's time to drink organic. Try the fine, earth-friendly wines imported by the Organic Wine Company since 1980. Just click on the link on my homepage at PeterBCollins.com. In the first of two appearances this week on the PBC show, our official film reviewer, Gary Chu, joins us from Sacramento. Gary, it's good to talk to you. How are you doing? I'm doing fine, Peter B. Good to hear from you as well. Now, in your second installment, we're going to talk about the Oscars coming up uh, very soon. But first, uh, because we just discussed with two fascinating people the history of the CIA's rendition and Black Sites program and torture, uh, it's a perfect theme to talk with you about the new Roman Polanski film, The Ghost Rider. And often I talk to you about films that I haven't seen, but I got a chance to see this on uh, opening night here in the Bay Area. And I was quite impressed. Uh, give our listeners a thumbnail of the flick, of course, without giving away key critical surprise points. Well, it's it's a, it's a supposedly fiction, but as you probably know, <clears throat> it's based on probably some things that actually happened <clears throat> about uh, uh, Prime Minister Blair and uh, a ghostwriter and... Uh, Possibly also his foreign uh, foreign secretary Robin Cook, mm-hmm. uh, but actually the story that Polanski and the author of the book put together for the script. The by the way, the novelist is Robert Harris. The book is called The Ghost. Polanski and he did, as I said, ad- adapted the script. Mm-hmm. It's about this uh, ghost writer who's called in to punch up this memoir of this debunked or defrocked. British Prime Minister, uh, as he is on the lam in uh, in off Martha's Vineyard, mm-hmm. uh, and he's he's uh, working on this this memoir. And the aide to the British Prime Minister falls off a ferry and drowns, and we don't know whether it was an accident or a suicide or what, and so on and so on. So they bring in the new uh, ghostwriter 
to finish up the memoir. That's played by Ian McGregor, who has the lead. We mm-hmm. don't have a name for him in the movie. They don't ever give his name. That's right. Yes. Yeah, and, he, he's just the ghost to uh, uh, to the, uh, the the former prime minister, who, of course, is uh, played by a, a former James Bond actor. <laughs> Pierce Brosnan plays Tony Blair in the movie, mm-hmm. and we don't know who Ian McGregor is, except he's the ghost and that the ex-British Prime Minister calls him man once in a while. Right. Mm-hmm. Got a good, don't you think it has a good cast? I really thought it was an excellent cast. Oh, it, it, I, I'm really impressed with the film, and of course, you know, we all have these uh, PC conflicts about Roman Polanski, but I put mm-hmm. that aside because I think that this is an excellent work, and it's very timely, uh, because as this new ghostwriter uh, arrives in the United States to try to finish this book on a deadline basis, uh, the scandal breaks of the prime minister's uh, involvement in war crimes. And the images that they show us are of waterboarding, which we were talking about in the preceding segment. And so uh, I found it uh, really interesting uh, to see as the International Criminal Court, which the United States does not recognize, and therefore uh, these, this former prime minister has a, a, a sanctuary in the United States, at least uh, for uh, the time period. And so it, it plays out in an interesting way. Uh, it shows the hordes of media who descend uh, like uh, roaches on, on this uh, island that could be Martha's Vineyard or Nantucket. And I think that he spun the story very well. Uh, I was interested the whole way through. There are a number of surprises and uh, I just thought the acting was very strong, and the script was uh, crisp and very smart. And the the movie is very very dark, and and you know of course uh, there are great storms in this uh, film, and the and you can see uh, heavy rain and ugly, mean looking, beautiful clouds over supposedly the Atlantic Ocean. Mm-hmm. And this really gave me a feeling for the sort of the impending storm of the whole story. And I think that, yeah, uh, I know, I'm not too crazy about some of the habits of Roman Polanski. Almost anybody can say that. But some of his films have really been good films, and you've got you to realize whether they are or not, and this one is a good film. I really think it is. And Kim Cattrall, who was in Sex in the City on HBO, plays, yeah. plays the PM's uh, Girl Friday, and she just almost... Steals two or three of the scenes in the movie. I thought. Well, really be, because film. because it's broadly hinted that she's having an affair with the former prime minister. I thought we ought to at least see one sex scene. Well, you know, it's it's really interesting that you don't see it. It's only implied, but I I really enjoyed seeing the scene with Olivia Williams, who plays uh, Pierce Brosnan's husband, a rather wife in mm-hmm. it, right? Where she seeks consolation with the ghostwriter at one point in the beach house. Uh-huh. Uh huh. Oh, and that. It was, it's, it's sort of implied, but uh, nothing really... The movie really isn't very sexy. It's all sort of subtext. Right. Uh, and, uh, but I thought it really got scary toward the end when the ghostwriter, Ian McGregor, uh, has this surreptitious meeting with a uh, uh, guy by the name of Robert Reichardt, who plays the parallel role of the actual deceased uh, foreign secretary, or uh, Robin Cook. And they're... What happens is, is is that things really get dangerous for the ghostwriter at this point. It becomes really a, an action thriller toward the end, I thought. And, you know, it's really really a, sort of a spine tingler toward the end. Oh, indeed, indeed. And uh, in your review, which people can find at TulsaTVMemories.com, 
Uh, you make an interesting point about one of the oldest actors uh, ever to appear in a major motion picture. <laughs> right, Eli Wallach. Eli Wallach is the age of my dear mother, who still breathes these days. Oh, they're both, good. They're both 95 years old. Uh-huh. And Eli Wallach, I thought, I'm, I'm so glad to see really old people still working occasionally now. Yep. I think he's probably was on screen for, what, four, four or five minutes, you know, with the one scene. It was good to see him. Another thing I always I found interesting, Peter B., and maybe you picked up on this, too. Did you notice the name of the corporation on the side of the private jet that the British Prime Minister rode around in? Of course I did. <laughs> it's Hatherton. Hatherton. Yes. <laughs> I kind of... close to a, a big bunch of trucks I used to see drive around in Oklahoma when I was a kid. Well, I I kind of wish I kind of wish that uh, you know they would have had a Dick Cheney double maybe as the pilot of the plane or something. <laughs> <laughs> oh boy, but a good movie, and uh, like I say, and you say, I'm sure uh, the Polanski movie is it's a good one, but I'm not uh, I'm not I'm not too happy about some of the things Polanski does. But you know that's just my own private business. It is, and uh, I, I can separate that. And, of course, one of the interesting things is I thought they did a convincing job. I've been to Martha's Vineyard, uh, which is right off the coast of Massachusetts, and uh, I thought that it was a very convincing scene, uh, and it you know just kept uh, triggering in my mind, well, you know, Roman Polanski isn't allowed in Massachusetts. <laughs> I know. Well, I, that was what, that's why it struck me, too. Now, one after I saw the movie... I started researching it to see where the film locations were, because I thought, well, Polanski would have to stay in Europe while they were shooting that part of the film if they did shoot it in Massachusetts. But right. uh, obviously it was shot in Germany and along the North Sea and the Baltic Sea, I think. Mm-hmm. Another thing, Peter B., that I found interesting in researching it a little bit further after, uh, because the movie, I, I, I made me think about a lot more things, and that is that Looking up and checking out a little bit more about Robin Cook, the uh, foreign secretary that I think he died in 2005, uh, his grandfather, on his, I guess it was his paternal grandfather, was once a miner, like under the under the ground, you know, working in uh, caves. Mm-hmm. He was a miner, and he was blacklisted for being involved in a strike. I thought that was an interesting connection to make with Robin Cook as the foreign secretary, who was also uh, uh, involved very deeply with the Labor Party in, in Britain, mm-hmm. Tony Blair. Yeah. Well, I, I just think that uh, they did a great job with the story. It uh, captured my attention and held it all the way through. And uh, I have to say that, uh, you know, in the last uh, four to five minutes of the film, there are some very interesting twists. Very interesting, and the very end itself, which obviously we can't talk about specifically, the uh, Polanski and whoever else made the ending last long enough so you could ruminate about all that had gone before in the film. Yeah. And only, and, and in fact, the ending is in itself is only implied. You can't actually see what happened. That's right. Yeah. But you're knowing what's happened in your own head, and that's 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 a that's a that's what makes his movies good, and like Rosemary's Baby and Chinatown and The Pianist, those are excellent films. They really are. Well, and, and I agree with you, and, and that's the, the touch, I think, that I, I give Polanski credit for, is that 
instead of uh, uh, playing everything out, you know, directly on the screen in a very blunt and uh, obvious way, uh, he is content to uh, suggest things or to use different techniques uh, to tell you what happened without uh, being, you know, as graphic as a kind of mundane television producer might. Exactly. As, as you said at the very beginning, the, the film is very smart. I think I say in my review that it's uh, uh, acerbic and smart or something like that, or punctuated. the dialogue is punctuated. Even the line that I have in there, or I put in my review that's in the movie, this is white wine. I've never quite understood the point of it. <laughs> I thought it was an interesting for wine lovers. I'm sure that's a very provocative line. Well, uh, I am a wino myself, um, but I do appreciate a good uh, single malt scotch. Mm -hmm. And so I wasn't offended by that. And, uh, you know, that that's kind of like uh, the way they took on Merlot in that, uh, uh, boy, I'm blocking on the name of the film about uh, wine in California. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I know what you're talking about. Uh, sideways? Yes, Sideways. Thank you. What a, what a great movie that is. By the way, the Napa Valley, I think, is mentioned... In the dialogue of the ghostwriter, somebody talks about a Napa Valley wine at win one line or something. Yeah, yeah, that's true. <laughs> well, Gary, great review and a good film. I recommend it to people, and uh, you want to give it a score? Do you, do, you, do you actually do scores, or do I just force you to do that? Oh, mm, let's see if you're doing what, what, what kind of a point system are you giving me? Ah, ten scales, easy. Ten is tops? Yeah. Okay, I'd give... Uh, I would give the Ghost Rider about an eight. Mm -hmm. It's an eight or a seven and a half. It's pretty. It's pretty well up there, past five. Yeah. I think. Yeah. Uh, uh, it's. It's. I recommend it. And anybody who likes political thrillers that are actually kind of hooked on history itself, it, it's. It's a pretty good film. Gary Chu, thanks for your review of the Ghost Rider, and we'll bring Gary back in a flash in the next podcast for a look at this year's Oscar Awards. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Peter B. Collins Show. Happy trails to you Until we meet again Happy trails to you Keep smiling